Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. Very excited to be here with you tonight. We're going to be joined by two wonderful guests, two Democratic Socialists who are running for office, Yapa Saidi Tupac and Kristen Gonzalez. And then we're going to talk to journalist Danny Haifang, who will be sharing with us his experience getting censored by Twitter. And of course, we welcome you to like this stream and also subscribe. Now, liking is so easy. You just hit like and then you're liking it. And it's a way to push back against our tech overlords who try to suppress us. Also, no joke, you need to make sure to subscribe to this channel because some people have been unsubscribed. And that's not me just saying that to justify not having like billions and millions and billions of followers, which of course I should. This is actually based on real evidence of people telling me that they've been unsubscribed, that they realize they're no longer subscribed. So that's important to do. You can become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. That gives you great things like access to extended interviews or bonus interviews, an extended interview with Susan Sarandon. Soon I'll have an interview with Roger Waters that's really good and very personal about his memoir. I'll also be interviewing Michael Hudson, and that'll be Patreon only. Also, I have a great interview I did with Richard Wolf, which is really makes... I think being a patron worth it. He talks a lot about his personal life. Very interesting. And so this show, most of it will be free because we always give you tons of free content. Part of it will be Patreon only. So if you're watching it later and you want to see the whole thing and the whole conversation with Danny Haifung, make sure you go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. So I'm going to just start off the show. I'm very excited. We're going to bring in our first guests, Yapa Saidi Tupac, and Iyapa is a social worker, climate organizer, and the son of indigenous Peruvian immigrants, and he's running for Assembly District 65. If elected, he'd be the first socialist representative to represent Lower Manhattan in over 100 years. And Kristen Gonzalez is a tech worker, Queens native, DSA organizer, and running for the new state Senate District 59. So... Let's welcome in those guests. Hello, welcome. Hello. Hello, hello. Thanks for joining. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Of course. I actually met you, Iapa, at a Stephen Donziger event. So that was cool to see you in person there. Me too. He's quite the hero. He's an amazing, amazing man. And uh, he really fought for so many South American people down there in Ecuador. And I have family in the Amazon. So it was super important to see his role in this fight. So I have so much respect and love for that man. Yeah. And Stephen Donziger, for people who don't know, is that great human rights environmental lawyer who was basically locked up by Chevron for daring to sue Chevron in a case of corporate prosecution and persecution. And we've done a bunch of shows on that. So it was exciting to see Iapa there. Welcome to the show. Nice meeting you, Kristen. Nice to meet you, too. And that sounds like a fun party. So next oh, it was. time. <laughs> it was. A street, it was a, a block party. It was really fun. Oh, that's awesome. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully he won't be arrested again, so we won't need to yeah. do it a, a next time where he's freed. But it was a, it was a good time. So 
we're going to get into why you guys are running, what the story is, what made you want to run. But before we do that, I wanted to refer to a tweet. It's from Kate Aronoff, who is great. She's a climate journalist. And, and I wanted to show this tweet because, you know, not everyone watching the show lives in New York. And also, if you're like me and you live in New York, you may not follow local politics as closely as you follow national politics. So I wanted to refer to this tweet from climate journalist Kate Aronoff. She tweeted, New York's Democratic supermajority just refused to pass climate policy for the third year in a row. National solar industry lobbyists teamed up with fossil fuel merchant power producers to kill a bill because they were scared of losing market share to public renewables. So can you fill us in on, on what's happening and what happened? Basically, spoiler alert, it looks like Joe Biden's unofficial promise that he made behind closed doors to donors that nothing would fundamentally change, sadly, applies to local politics as much as national. But please let us know about what's happening now in New York. You want to do, Kristen? Yeah. Well, I think what's happening right now in New York is that we have an Albany that doesn't have our best interests at heart, that is failing us on climate. And for, like the tweet said, the third year in a row has not passed any climate legislation. For those who are tuning in who are less familiar with the current state of our climate um, and, and energy um, specifically in New York, we're only at 4% wind and solar. Uh, we have an aggressive you know, goal to move off of that by 2030. We're deeply behind, but ultimately we don't have the leaders who want to pass pieces of legislation like the Build Public Renewables Act, which would be essential in expanding our renewable energy. But I can also turn it to Ayatha, who has been organizing around this as well um, for the last few years. Thanks, Kristen. Yeah, so me and my comrades, well, we really believe that you know, public utilities should be a reality. Public publicly owned utilities already exist in Nebraska, in Sacramento. So New York is actually very behind this regard. We believe Nebraska that Nebraska beats us. That's really embarrassing. Wow. <laughs> we believe that energy is a human right. The very way in which we refrigerate our foods, energy should not be held hostage by a billion dollar corporation like Con Edison. So my comrades, they wrote this bill called the Bill Public Renewables Act, which would give us more renewable energy so that we could not be reliant on Con Edison. And essentially, just to, to boil it down, it made a lot of progress. This bill passed through the state Senate and it was right about to pass through the state assembly. But the Speaker of the House, Carl Hasty, he blocked it from coming to a vote, effectively killing the bill. And me and my organizing friends, we had a list of all these assembly people that had pledged to vote for it if it came to a vote. And I believe they would have, but Carl uh, realized this was a threat to him. And Carl's famous for taking money from the possibly industry. And so it didn't come to a vote. So really, our democratic process was, was really killed. And so we're very upset. This just happened a few days ago, really. And we had all this momentum. And so we as climate organizers are very uh, feeling a little cynical right now, but that's okay because I'm running on a slate alongside Kristen and five other socialists who believe that um, we must fight against climate change and we must primary those in power to hold them accountable because they are sitting on their hands while common sense legislation is not being passed. Yeah, we had the votes. We had 83 in the assembly. So it's so disappointing. And, you know, also for folks listening in, if you're frustrated with your con ed bills going up, uh, as so many people in my district and Ayafa's district are, you know who to blame now. Yeah, we should do a protest in front of Carl Hussey's house. Well, I mean, a lot of people have given up on Democrats. Some people watching now get annoyed with me because I think that especially local elections make a difference. What's your response to people who feel like Democrats are hopeless? I understand the cynicism. I, I, I get it myself. And I think 
we are not strong enough to have a third party right now. And until then, I think we should continue to um, play within the system, which we can replace in primary those who are blocking us, who are harming our communities, who are bought and sold by various big interest groups. And I think that it's going to take a minute to get there. But I, I just... Um, don't get me wrong. If like I feel like if Bernie Sanders wanted to start a party tomorrow, like I would like let's go. But like, that's not happening anytime soon. And unfortunately, we have to. We're stuck in this system of Democrats and Republicans. And yes, many of them, not most, are are, are really compromised by by big lobbyists. But I know it's a loaded question. I think right now we need to play within this within this chessboard as it is and see who we can move out and who we can move in. Yeah. I would echo everything Ayapa said, but also add to the fact that, you know, my background in the Democratic Party, I worked for different Democrats, um, and it was the disappointment I had with the party that pushed me to the DSA, so the Democratic Socialists. I didn't know what it meant to be a Democrat anymore. I still don't know what it means to be a Democrat as the Democratic Party stands today, but I know what it means to be a Democratic Socialist. I know we have clear values and clear policy priorities, and it also is rooted in organizing in multiracial working class communities, like the one I grew up in right here in Queens. So honestly, the hope for the Democratic Party for me is the future is the DSA. That's why you know, Ayapa and I are running as part of a slate of DSA candidates. We've achieved so much with just six socialists in Albany. We taxed the rich. We passed historic rent reforms. What we're doing is imagining what Albany would look like with seven more. Yeah. So tell people what the DSA has been able to achieve in power on the local level. Absolutely. So DSA is interesting because we believe in running slates of working class organizers uh, to eventually create a voting block within the state legislator, right? So we're not, we don't really believe in the cult of personality. We don't really believe in these one-offs. We believe in, in teams. And, and the more we have more electeds in power, the more we can pressure and scare those in power to bend to our will or to, we can organize them from within and we can hold them accountable. And we're growing. We already have four uh, or six, sorry, and state legislator. We have Julia Salazar, state senator. We have Jabari Bridgeport, state senator. And we have assembly persons, Zora Lamdani in Queens, Marcella Mutinez, Ferris Front. Who am I forgetting right now? Who am I forgetting? Kristen, is that it? Oh, um, yes. So we have Emily Sarah, Gallagher. Emily, Emily Gallagher, Zora Lamdani, yes, Julia Jabari. And, and so what we believe is that those elected, once elected, we're just organizers with more power. And you see that with, with Zora Lamdani, who went on a hunger strike and he was there on the front lines, the tax medallion, you know, strikers in the city hall, and he was there. And because of of his organizing alongside the amazing taxi drivers, they, you know, their their debts were essentially canceled. Um, similarly with Marcel Mitainez, she helped her actions alongside the other excluded workers. They were able to get millions of dollars in funding. So we really see material change, material gains from having democratic socialists in power. And me and Kristen and our comrades want to similarly be people who will be held accountable, who be on the ground once elected, who be very present in our communities and who won't be, who aren't interested in being in ivory towers doing nothing. Yeah. And what does being a democratic socialist mean for you guys? Yeah, um, I think I spoke a little bit about it. Um, we have shared values. We have shared principles and policy priorities. Uh, but I will also add, um, it is material gains, right, for our communities. It's about distributing power and public infrastructure. I came from a background where I was working on publicly owned, publicly operated infrastructure because I worked in deeply entrenched um, settings, democratic and 
machine politics settings where I saw that power was limited to the few, but our future should look like is distributed to the many, right? Um, and so that's what being a DSA member means for me. And when we talk about material gains, we also talk about, uh, you know, we had a surplus in the budget this year. I think a lot of people don't realize for the first time ever, we had a surplus in Albany's budget. And it was because our DSA and our socialist electeds fought to tax the rich. But instead of using that surplus and our tax dollars to invest in our working class communities to make our lives better after a pandemic, you know, we invested a billion dollars in a Buffalo Bill stadium, which Apologies to anyone who is a Buffalo Bills fan watching this. Uh, you know, no, no hate on the Buffalo Bills, but really, that's not our priority. We are struggling to just survive. I came from a family where, you know, I watched my mom struggle to just give us a dignified life. And what DSA means to me is everyone deserves a dignified life. And my family struggled to achieve that, struggled to send me to school. I struggled to, I have, you know, to also do the same, right? Um, so it really does mean a dignified life for all working people. And so what made you guys want to run? And how did your personal experiences influence you and make you want to run? Yeah, I think me and Kristen were actually recruited to run. This wasn't an original idea. I'm a social worker. I'm very proud to give mental health care to those in my district. I've been doing this for a few years. And I think basically DSA is very strategic and they when I, as organizers, we have gained the trust of our comrades because we're on the ground, we're organizing with them. And eventually what happens is that if you will you might get approached by a comrade and say, hey, would you ever consider running in this district? And it's not just any district. These are strategic districts in which either it's an incumbent that isn't doing anything that's blocking us, or maybe it's a district that, that would need social representation that to empower the working class. And so in my case, I was recruited to run by my, my eco-socialist comrades who saw me as a leader and they saw me as someone they could trust and that could you know fight for a Green New Deal as a state legislator. And uh, at first, of course, I was saying, no, this is not this is not my plan. This is not where I come from. I don't come from this world. But eventually they beat me down because I was like, you know what, why not? Why not have a working class gay son of immigrants run down here? And, and, and really this district where I live, which comprises Chinatown, Lower East Side, Two Bridges, Seaport, this is where so many of the folks who came on settled, uh, from Ellis Island, they settled here first. And they brought with them their amazing leftist politics, right? We have the Puerto Rican diaspora. We have our amazing Jewish Marxist comrades from Europe. So this is a real, this is for me where we come from as a movement. And so it's so symbolic and beautiful for me to run here as a son of immigrants. And so, and so after a while, I'm like, you know what, let's just do this. Let's run for the seat. Let's, and I'm obviously, you may have heard I'm competing against a multi-million dollar, a millionaire candidate who accepts big money from Wall Street, big money from Trump supporters. So we really are the, the campaign in this race where it's it's us, the working class candidate versus the millionaire. And we have great faith we're going to win. Yeah. Tell us more about your opponent. Her name is Grace Lee. Uh, she comes from the finance world. Um, she, uh, the Manhattan machine wants her to win. So the democratic clubs have all come around her. They've all corralled around her. And it's unfortunate because, because we know her average donation in her first filing was like over $700 and she still calls her campaign a grassroots campaign. And it's absurd because it's not. Meanwhile, our average campaign donations are around $40. We're very proud of that. And, and yeah, it's, it's, uh, she hasn't been involved in championing any of these bills like the Bill Public Renewables Act or the Good Cause Bill. She hasn't been active in any of these spaces. And it's very upsetting and, and frustrating to see her kind of co-opt our language, co-opt her messages, uh, when she doesn't have any uh, leader leadership history and, and fighting for these on the lines that we, me and Kristen have. So it's unfortunate, but uh, 
she's relying on her big bucks and you, you, you know, it's public violence. So you can see your donors, you can see who's supporting her. And these are people like Bloomberg family. These are people who are not the working class. And we're very proud to have this grassroots campaign. We have a strong ground game. We've knocked over 40, around $40,000, 40,000 doors already. And we're going to, we're going to win this at the field level. So we're going to keep fighting. And what about your family? I know that you refer to your family in your biography a lot. Tell us about their experience. Yeah, so they came from Peru in the 80s. Uh, they came to New York. And the classic story, my mom was cleaning houses. My dad was, at a, was a busboy at a restaurant. And we were renting an apartment. We were told one day that we had to move because someone had bought the apartment. So I experienced being displaced very early. The very scary chapter for me and my family. So I, I, it's very personal for me to fight against displacement in lower Manhattan. As you know, there's all these predatory developers that come on in. They build these sky rises in lower Manhattan. We have to fight against this. We're trying to buy, trying to build these new two towers right off Rucker Street, on Cherry Street downtown, and right, right next to NYCHA housing. It's absurd. And this is the fact that we even have to have these conversations is very upsetting. But my parents fought tooth and nail. My mom is now, you know, a psychiatric nurse. My dad is now a teacher at CUNY. And so I'm very proud of, of the American dream. They were able to, to fight for us and to achieve for my, me and my siblings. And, um, and yeah, I just want to fight for immigrants like them who couldn't speak any English when they first got here, but who were able to at least find a decent life of dignity. And what about you, Kristen? Yeah, I think Yafa and I share a lot of uh, similarities in our stories. I think, you know, we both had a, you know, working class, but also immigrant background. I was actually born and raised in Elmhurst, Queens. My mom, you know, I was born in Elmhurst Hospital. A lot of the neighbors in the pandemic, the epicenter of the epicenter, were neighbors I grew up with. Um, And I was really politicized early on. I watched my mom struggle after my dad passed away when I was really, really young. She didn't know how to take care of a you know newborn while also keeping a roof over our heads and food on the table. And then, you know, a little later on when she eventually became a paraprofessional, which is a special education teacher, um, you know, she's a so I grew up in a union household. But she saw that my own public school classroom was overcrowded and underfunded. We had 40 students. I was in fifth grade, 40 students in a classroom. We didn't all have seats. And she actually Googled, you know, good schools in New York because she wanted to see if there was an opportunity to send me somewhere else for middle school. And Google gave her a list of 10 schools. And she didn't realize it at the time, but they were 10 independent schools. And she called through and, you know, they, they told her how much it was and then actually told her there was financial aid. I got really lucky because I got a scholarship to go to one of them on the Upper East Side. But what that meant for the rest of my life and, you know, was that I grew up between two New Yorks. I grew up between a working class immigrant community in Elmhurst and then going to school with some of the most affluent students in the entire city. And I wanted to know why we had such breathtaking inequalities. So that's what got me involved. I started organizing at a really young age in high school. Um, and so my story and Road to DSA starts there. Um, it starts with my parents and then it goes on with me seeing how things were true with the two New Yorks were true then. It's still true today. And we do need people um, to organize within our communities because that is the only way that we are going to push back on this intentional inequality that is being upheld every day by our leaders on honestly every level of government. So yeah, I'm excited to be on a slate with the Yafa and I'm really excited to be running in a brand new Senate team. And tell us who you're running against, Kristen. Up until recently, you were running against one person, right? Yes. Uh, actually, I was running against a few people. So um, just, you know, a little bit of background, too, on districting. I'm sure you and so many others have followed this incredible uh, cycle. But 
we were running in the brand new Zenit seat that covered where I live now in Long Island City. Um, and it got redistricted into a new, new Senate district, District 59, but that still maintained two of the core neighborhoods in what was Senate District 17. So two and two of the neighborhoods that were the population densest and really where we spent the most time. So Long Island City and Greenpoint. And I've been running, uh, and now it has Astoria, Williamsburg, and parts of Manhattan, so I attend the Gibbs Bay. And in the previous Senate District 17, I was running against a candidate in Greenpoint and also Elizabeth Crowley. Um, cause that district 17 covered Glendale and Massabath and she, you know, she lives in Glendale, uh, also Woodhaven, Ozone Parks, parts of South Queens. Uh, and if that name sounds familiar, it's cause she's the cousin of Joe Crowley, the congressman that AOC unseated. And it is really a result of going up again, similar to Yapa, not only a moneyed candidate, but a candidate that is backed by a machine, a candidate that has taken money from Trump supporters, from real estate in the past. Um, so, you know, that was Senate District 17. Now we're still running against her. She, you know, we announced for 59. She followed us back into this race. But I will say there are also, of course, a petitioning process. So there are other candidates, multiple candidates that are petitioning um, to get on the ballot. So there was a bit of a controversy. Let's just get this out of the way a bit. There is some controversy because someone joined the race, Nomiki Kantz, who has a show called The Nomiki Show. And she's also often co-hosts The Majority Report. And people may know, I mean, I've had some public disagreements with Nomiki, but this is not going to be a snarky point scoring segment or anything. I just want to clarify some of the issues that have been brought up. We have a video of Sam Cedar, who is the host of the Majority Report. So just so people know, Nomiki Konst announced that she was joining the race. She announced on the Majority Report, the show that she often hosts on. It wasn't clear, I don't think, to some of the people, at least to one of the hosts, Emma, and one of the producers, Matt, Emma Viglund, Matt Lech. They didn't realize that, Kristen, you were in the race. You'd been endorsed by DSA and AOC, as well as other progressives and progressive organizations. So they kind of said that they were endorsing you. Sam Cedar maintained, I guess, his Nomiki Konst endorsement. There was a lot of pushback on this, but I wanted to just play some of what Sam said about this race and have you respond to it. Sure. And this is Sam mentioning Nomi joining the race. She jumped into the race and Kristen had already in the 17th district uh, gotten secured endorsements from AOC, DSA. And if you want me to stop at any point, Kristen, just tell me, say pause and I will. Okay. (laughs) Sure. AOC had endorsed the slate and um, in the 17th and the WFP. Working Families Party. And and maybe one or two. Yeah. Paused. Yeah. I, you know, I I don't know how far or how long the clip is, but, you know, happy to wait till the end, too, to set the record straight. AOC actually endorsed us for the 59th district, which she overlaps and represents in. Uh, So, yeah, that was just just flagging that. Got it. Okay. Two other uh, bigger groups. Nomi jumped into the race because she had heard from community people in this and uh, in people in in uh, where she lives in uh, Astoria. Um, I think from her perspective and from the perspective that we're encouraging her to run, that despite the fact that Kristen had these bigger organizations that were endorsing her, that she didn't have support in the community based upon the new maps that were drawn. 
that her strength, uh, you know, she was in Long Island City, but the, 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 the bulk of the population was now going to be north of there uh, in Astoria. And, of course, it also goes into Manhattan now, the 17th district, excuse me, the 59th district. Pause, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Again, I don't know how much, you know, I'm happy to oh, wait yeah. until the end. But, but I'm happy, you know, I'm thank you for showing this. I'm happy, you know, that you're bringing this up because it's a great opportunity to set the record straight. Um, 25% of the population is in Astoria. So 75% is actually outside of that. Um, I live in Long Island City. I've been organizing in Long Island City for years. I helped start the Western Queens Community Land Trust here to help fight gentrification. I've also been part of anti-Amazon efforts here. So uh, not only is this somewhere that I've been doing a lot of the organizing, but you know, also a lot of the door knocking. Because LIC and Greenpoint overlapped with what 17 was, um, we had not and have already knocked over, you know, at this point over 10,000 doors when the new district was drawn over 8,000 doors had, you know, over a thousand positive IDs. So we really weren't starting from scratch. And what I will also add is we are, uh, all of these organizations, even though DSA did an endorsement for 17 are still coming with us and endorsing us in 59 because what Ayapa and I are and what we represent are movement candidates. We're part of a slate because it's bigger than one seat and one race. We run together because we run to fight for things like climate justice, housing justice, healthcare justice, helping pass the New York Health Act. Um, and I guess what I will also just add to this is because of that, I am also still and was endorsed and am still now in 59 uh, endorsed by five overlapping, overlapping in our district socialist electeds who are community leaders, who are community organizers, and who are working with us to build powers with to build power with community organizers in Senate District 59 in every neighborhood. So, you know, I, I guess I, I just paused here to kind of help set the record straight there, but also, um, yeah. <laughs> and look, people were, uh, there were some people particularly online, who were upset. And the feeling was that, that Nomi was going to split the vote against Crowley. I wasn't aware of, you know, uh, what uh, endorsements uh, Gonzalez had. But the bottom line ultimately is this. We don't cover Senate district races on a regular basis. Nomi is a friend of the show. Obviously, she's a regular guest. She came on, uh, and I endorsed her. Um, this is Sam's. Day. This is Sam's view, right? Like I want. Well, yeah, I, no, I've been clear uh, yeah, that yeah. I support the Emma, DSA. Emma, I support the DSA slate. Emma and Matt have already spoken on yeah. this yesterday, and um, and I don't know what Bradley's opinion is, but everybody on the show can have their own opinion. I don't know what strength Kristen Gonzalez has in this district. And I don't really know what strength Nomi has. There's no, there's no one he's polling this district. Um, I don't know what organization, I, know, I don't know that uh, Kristen Gonzalez had much money raised. I don't know, frankly, that the people in Gramercy or you know, uh, in Manhattan care about AOC's endorsement. I don't know what kind of strength the DSA chapter in Queens in, in Astoria has versus the one that goes deep into Queens. I don't, I, I don't know these things. Anything else you want to 
say in response? <laughs> um, I saw Yafa muted. <laughs> I'm sure Yafa has opinions on DSA. I think, uh, I, I think it's yeah. I think I think it's a problem that you don't know so much, right? I think it's a problem that you have these opinions and you don't know. Like the fact that the Brooklyn Family's party endorsed Chris, and the fact that these amazing leaders all over her district, um, real leftist progressive leaders all believe in Kristen. You should know a little bit about that, right? And I think that playing like you're so uninformed um, isn't really fair and uh, it just doesn't bode well for, because I, I, I like generally like Sam and I know that he um, generally has a hand on the pulse of how things are going on the left side. And, you know, Astoria is probably DSA's strongest neighborhood in the whole entire United States. You know, that's the reality. We have Tiffany Gabon representing that district. We have Zoram Dani representing the district. So, in fact, Kristen is very strong. Thank you, Ayafa. Um, I I appreciate the solidarity, but I think to that point, um, you know, I'm focused on our organization, and I think the only real response I'll have is, while Astoria may be new to Senate District 59, we're not new to Astoria. We're not new to this district. This is our democratic socialist stronghold. It's where we've not only, uh, you know, elected AOC and beat one of the most powerful uh, Democrats in the country. It's also where we organize against a billion dollar, $1.5 billion energy fracked gas power plant and one when no one thought that was possible. It's where we've elected Tiffany Caban. It's where we've um, elected assembly members Iran Mamdani and also assembly members Emily Gallagher uh, down in Greenpoint and Williamsburg um, and Senator Julie Salazar. So this district is a DSA stronghold. So this is where our membership is. This is a continuation of the movement that all of those people have started. And so, you know, we're not new to this district. I've been organizing here for years. I was born and raised in Queens and I am, uh, we're not starting from scratch. We've raised a lot of money. <laughs> I can set the record straight there. Um, all from small dollar donations. And um, we also have the full backing for 59 of the consolidated left because it's about coalition building. And I can say that I'm the only candidate here that is coming. Uh, we're accountable to that coalition and I am coming with, with as a movement candidate with the community with me. And what are some of the things that you guys will do if you take power, be able to do? Oh my gosh, so much. Yeah, Yeah, where do you want to start? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really exciting that the idea of having these local organizers in power. We're definitely championing the New York Health Act, championing the Bill for Agreeables Act, championing, for me, the Elderly Parole and Telling Fair and Telling Parole Act, which is all about parole justice. Uh, I originally come from that world, from, you know, parole justice world. I happily, proudly organized with rap campaign, which has released aging people in prison for years. So the fact that we can be inside these conversations for once and not be on the outside heckling these, you know, these legislators, to be in these meetings, to be in conference, to be debating these bills from the assembly floor to bed in these meetings is really, really exciting. Of course, there'll be a learning curve for me, I'm sure for Kristen too, when she wins. Um, but we'll have people we trust that we've already elected on the inside to coach us, to teach us, to show us the, the landscape. And I think that's what solidarity really is, is passing the baton on to your other comrades who are now in power and saying, OK, this is how this is how it functions. It's a, it's a dysfunctional swamp. We know what it is. But at least with us here, we can work together and, and we have a, a lived perspective of fighting for the working class. And that's not going to change. Kristen, anything you want to add? Yeah, I think all of that. We're also still proving that, you know, DSA can win, right? That's important for our movement. And 
I would also say that, you know, what we really win and why it's important to have a slate, again, is just building a larger, you know, counter to the machine politics that we've seen today, right, that are holding us back. So I'm, yeah, every, everything Iapa said, but there's also so much more on health around education, um, constituent services. I think when we talk about, I think Senate races are, local races are important. I'm with you on that. They have the most effect in our communities and the budget that comes with that is also the ability to organize in our communities and use that budget for that. What are other things that you'd like us to know about how bad your main opponents are? So Grace Lee ran last cycle and the last time she ran, she donated uh, a third of a million dollars to her own campaign. And somehow that's allowed. You can donate that much money to yourself. It is absurd. Um, she also, the last time she ran, she also bought the website of her opponent, her name, and she made an attack website on this person's name. Like, I wish that were illegal. That's so sneaky. Absolutely. Who knows if it'll happen to me this cycle? I don't know. But I know that uh, my opponent is, is you know, they come from the real estate world. They come from the finance world. And, and um Big real estate is supporting her and Rebney or Real Estate Board of New York, which you know, all these bad actors and landlord, bad, bad landlords, um, they've declared that they're going to attack in this district. So basically, they're going to send out attack mailers on me. Who knows when? Um, so that's something I need to think about and, and experience for the first time. It's like, oh, I, I, it's part of the game. I get it, right? But I'm also like, that's terrible. They're just going to send these terrible attack ads on me. They're going to be sent up. They have millions of dollars to pump out to every single person in this district. So that's like a new experience for me as, as a human. I'm just a candidate as a human. Basically, the powers that be are afraid of people like me and Kristen because they know we're gonna we're the enemy of, of big real estate. We're the enemy of big fossil fuel industry. We're the enemy of, of the billionaires and millionaires who hate the working class and who don't want us to have uh, a free free CUNY. They don't want us to have the New York Health Act, which is basically universal health care for everyone in New York State. They don't want us to have that. Uh, and so, me and Kristen are, are proud to be on the right side of history. Yeah. I think our main opponents share a lot of those things. Um, you know, the machine, not the real estate interest, fossil fuel interest. I will say that, you know, former Congressman Joe Crowley is actively fundraising for my opponent. Um, so very much the political dynasty, they're trying to uphold and maintain here in Queens. They're trying to cut into our progressive stronghold here in Western Queens. Uh, I think it is also beyond me that, you know, my main opponent lives in Glendale. That's where that's the address listed on her petitioning signatures, but then says she has a second property that she bought in 2021 in Long Island City, which is her claim for running. It is so vastly different from the lived experience of most of the community members I know, which are, again, are working class, we're lifelong renters. I'm a lifelong renter, certainly nowhere near buying a place. Uh, so I would also you know, share just how out of touch our opponents are with the, you know, everyday kind of working class uh, family of Queens. And again, it's our communities on the line when, when legislation doesn't get passed. Brian Frederick asks, do they support ranked choice voting? Also, I want to read, left is best says, what is status of Cisneros? Does she have money for recount? I don't know if you know the answer to that. I don't. And then Brathwaite, Bone Spurs writes, you never read my comments, Katie, but I'm still going to give you some cash-ish. Great guess. Thank you. Yeah. So rank <laughs> choice. Do you guys have a position on that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it doesn't, obviously it's not, it's not an effect here for our assembly races, but I think for the city council races, that's an effect. And uh, for me, ultimately the most important thing is getting big money out of politics. Right. And I think that uh, it's interesting how ranked choice voting can show you how folks, the list in which how they prefer their candidate is fascinating and good data ultimately. Yeah. 
support policies, not politicians, says, can we strengthen Americans with Disabilities Act? I was fired three times for having a seizure at work on there are steps at all subway stops. I can't drive and I learned how to walk. Stairs are hard. Absolutely, we have to. And I think to a larger point, New York City, which is one of the richest cities in the world, we're so behind in having you know, a disability accessible infrastructure, whether it be our subways or our trains or buses, we're still really behind and it's a real failure. Um, and we must always uh, keep in mind those who, can't, who are not as able-bodied as we are. We should tax the rich for massive new investment in our suburbs. Yes, and get people voting in their local and state elections because so many of those infrastructure and also worker protections can be passed on the state level. That's why Albany is so important. The money and funding also for the MTA. MTA is controlled at the state level. Um, so when we talk about accessibility, but also broad accessibility and just infrastructure issues, let's get people voting. <laughs> Any particular endorsements you want to mention? Cynthia Nixon, that's cool. Any other ones you want to mention? I think we've, we've talked about some, you know, again, really proud of, of AOC and, and the overlapping socialists, all of the socialist electeds. Um, and, you know, no IDC recently endorsed. I'm trying to think through recent endorsements as well. Uh, Sunrise Movement, Working Families Party. These are all important stakeholders, local organizations, too, um, that have been doing the work. So I think, you know, again, it's it's that coalition is important. Um I think the last thing, too, I would mention, though, and we should uh, speak to is our two different primary dates between Ayafa and I. Oh, that's right. cool. <laughs> but yeah, Ayafa, I'll turn it to you for endorsements. Yeah, I obviously proud of AOC, proud to have Tenants Pack, which is an amazing group. Uh, proud to have, uh, we got our first union endorsement by, uh, recently. It's Unite Here Local 100, and these are essential workers, food service workers. I'm honored to have that. Uh, we have some. We have some other endorsements that are going to be revealed very soon, so I can't spoil that. But yeah, we're, we're feeling very good and we're very proud of how far we've come. And no IDC. Can you guys just tell people watching what the IDC is? Yeah, they were a group of Democrats that wanted to be independent Democrats and not vote with the rest of the party and caucus with Republicans. So uh, no IDC was formed to unseat them and they did. Um, and they won. So that organization had been doing the work too, to push back on, on Democratic Party politics when they were failing us. Some observer writes, everyone on the left should avoid individual cult of personality campaigns and run as part of a collective slates. That's how we build collective power. Yeah, these endorsements aren't just shiny, like to put on our website. What they really mean is that the people who have been organizing in our city and organizing our communities for years trust us to, to carry that movement in Albany. And they really didn't just give it to us. They really vetted us for them too. Like we had to go to forums and just take a bunch of questions. Some of them are really hard hitting questions from the people in the audience, member, longtime members. And so we really had to earn all of our endorsements. I'm very proud of that uh, because it's not, we don't see them as little trophies or little stamps of approval. We see them as a, a real uh, trust and belief in our platform and us as candidates that we, we will be held accountable by these people who are endorsing us. And what about examples? Like, I think a lot of people think that once people get into power, they become sellouts. I mean, it happens a lot less. The more local, the harder it is, I think, for that to happen, or the easier it is, I should say, to maintain your political convictions. But can you give some examples of things that DSA people have managed to achieve despite being in power? We mentioned earlier how, how they were, thanks to the organizing within power, they were able to get, you know, millions and billions of dollars uh, allocated to working class folks. But I, I do think that 
it also helps that, for instance, for me, if I win as the assembly person, I'll have a, a, a two-year term, right? And then I'm up, I'm up on the chopping block again, right? To get re-endorsed or what if someone primaries me? So we are, we are held accountable by the system of these short terms and people can always have options. They, if I'm not satisfying their needs, they can vote me out really quickly, right? So I think that this is a built-in system in which we, the voting class, the voting, the voters can can always assess us in real time and say, all right, how am I feeling about my current life? Is he up doing what he promised? Is he is he putting his is he putting his values on the line? Is he fighting for us? And if not, then I can get primaried even maybe by a more leftist or maybe a more right uh, you know person than me. But it's it's a democratic process and we're proud of that. Yeah. And I would say DSA is also, if the question was like what we've won too, you know, I talked about the power plant outside of legislation, right? The power plant we pushed back again. I also helped launch an internet for all campaign because DSA is also outside our electeds have supported campaign work. So, you know, and that campaign, what I'm proud of is it built power, not only within DSA, but we had labor support, for example, for example, IBUW, um, we had activist support from Vocal New York. So DSA has won beyond our electeds and because of our electeds being organizers in office, also campaign work that has expanded across the left. And that really drives home what Yapa is saying, which is our accountability becomes to our larger coalition and to the larger um, you know, working community. What was that email that a Cuomo staffer wrote about Zoran? Because like, oh, we can't touch Zoran. We can't get him involved because he's DSA. Basically, the reputation, the reputation of DSA people in power, the people who are more corrupt, um, they understand that they can't, they really can't um, affect us or move us the way they can. Maybe a more regular, uh, maybe more lib or maybe more, um, you know, less aligned uh, elected is. And we're proud of that. We're proud that the DSA, even in the short time that DSA folks have been in power, that we've established this name, this reputation for ourselves, that we're not... We're not bought and sold. Deha co-writes, hi, Yappa. Hi, Kristen. Unfortunately, out of town since December for your races due to family matters. Get him. Uh, that's what Comrade Deha. He's an amazing organizer. He was involved in AOC's uh, first campaign election. So he's a really well-known organizer. So that means a lot. Hey, Deha. Hey, Deha. Hi, Deha. Then Nathan Kreitz-Heron writes, Kristen, what kind of pressure can you help put on the squad that has really not been held accountable by DSA, which some are members of? Um, you know, I don't necessarily know if I would say that they have not been held accountable. We have consistently chosen, like Yapa said, we choose every year to vote on endorsements. And we've, you know, voted on endorsing AOC consistently because as a member of the squad, she is accountable to our organization has and has been actively building our organization and our movement. Um, and again, Yapa and I are just proud to, to, you know, stand with her. What I can say, though, is that um, our organization's power comes from our voting blocks. And as someone who overlaps, there's a lot of work that I can do with her to, br- to really win for and bring investment back into, uh, you know, the Queens community and then by extension in, in this district, Brooklyn and Manhattan. Um, but ultimately, it's working with those overlapping electeds and working with other socialists, um, our socialists work as a block. So um, at, in Albany. Right. So. It is beyond just one C, one person. And I want to add really fast just to remind everyone how involved DSA was in the uh, Investment in New York Act, which is aka the Tax the Rich Act. We really organized, we agitated, we had rallies, we phone banked. I led phone banks in Spanish to call people to call their electives to fight and prioritize for the Investment in New York Act, aka Tax the Rich. And because of this, we raised 
able to raise $4.3 billion in new taxes on the rich. And this is a huge redistribution of wealth. You know, this is a real material achievement that only happened because DSA elected officials in New York are in power. And me and Kristen want to continue that tradition of, of doing this, you know, making, making DSA known, but also just fighting in power for those who elected us. Any last words that you want to share? Yeah, so, you know, the whole lawsuit and did redistricting everything. Basically, my primary is on June 28th. And Kristen's, you want to see when yours is? August 23rd. Are you worried about a split about the left progressive vote being split, Kristen? Since that's something that a lot of people are talking about. You know, I am focused, again, on building our coalition and our base. I'm really confident about our campaign's uh, path to victory. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't see, for us, you know, we are confident that we're delivering home for our socialists and the rest of our coalition, uh, Working Families Party and others. So, yeah, I, I think I'll leave it at that. Awesome. Okay. Any final words or are you guys good? We're good. Thank you for having us, Katie. We're, we're long-time fans of the show. And we, we oh, thanks. We're doing a lot of good work on, in, in here in this, in this arena. And uh, thank you for having us. Thanks so much, guys. Nice meeting you. Bye. Bye. All right. Thank you, Kristen and Iyapa. That was great chatting with them. And thanks to everyone who's still here. We're going to bring in the next guest. We're very excited to talk about him. The inimitable Danny Haifang. Hi, Danny. How are you? Hey, I'm, I'm doing okay. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back. We're so excited to be talking to Danny Haifang, who is a columnist at the Black Agenda Report. And he is also an editor of Friends of Socialist China and an author of books, very good books. Yes, yes. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks so much. On American exceptionalism. Yes. And please share with us what happened to you the other day on Twitter. And also tell us about who you are. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So first, I mean, I'm a journalist. I've been writing as a columnist for Black Agenda Report since 2013. So 10 years coming up. And I'm also a co-editor of Friends of Socialist China, and there, we have an event actually on June 11th that you all should check out, socialistchina.org. I'll be plugging that hopefully later um, on U.S. imperialism's war and multipolarity. Great guest list. But I help co-edit that platform where we just disseminate information about China from all sorts of different sources, original and otherwise. And uh, other than that, though, I co-host the... Uh, the YouTube channel. I'm the primary host of The Left Lens, so you can go over there and subscribe. And uh, yeah, I also write weekly, sometimes independently as well on Substack, so you can follow me there, chroniclesofhaifang.substack.com. But yeah, I'm co-authored the book on American exceptionalism and American innocence, a people's history of fake news, as you uh, said, Katie, 2019. But yeah, so I woke up Sunday morning. So Saturday was the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. And I put up quotes because the point of the thread was that it was not a massacre. So I, you know, uh, it was about a seven, I think something like 70 tweet thread, talked about Western mainstream media, how they admitted in many instances, it's just, they're just not pushed up to the front of the thousands of other articles claiming tens of thousands of people died that day on 1989. So I made this tweet and, you know, we, we know the algorithm is very against these kind of tweets, but it was doing quite well. And then I noticed it kind of stopped, right? And I was like, oh, and usually when that's happened to me in the past, I get an email saying that 
someone in Germany has uh, reported me. And usually I don't get kicked off. I did that one time. I was on your program last uh, with the whole Keith Overman situation with Wyatt Reed. And that was for 12 hours. So I wake up the next day, Sunday morning. And and can you just briefly tell people what happened with the Keith Overman thing? Sure. So Keith Oberman replied to a Wyatt Reed tweet. He was in Nicaragua uh, and he posted pictures uh, that of his trip. And then Keith Oberman replied to him saying that Wyatt Reed was a whore for uh, dictators. And I replied saying that he was, that Keith Oberman was a whore for uh, corporate media from Monopoly Capital, something of that uh, sort. And then I was reported or flagged or whatever. And I was uh, locked out of my account for 12 hours. So I wake up on Sunday morning, uh, June 5th and uh, uh, this year, and I uh, go onto Twitter and Twitter immediately tells me that I've been locked out for at least seven days. Uh, they say that it could be longer, but that seven days was the minimum. Immediately as I press the touch, you know, touch screen phone. So I press the touch screen. The, that information goes away and then it just says you need to delete your tweet or you're uh, ousted for seven days, you're locked for seven days. So I thought, okay, maybe they're just going to let me delete the tweet. I wrestled with appealing and I did appeal. And then I was like, look, I've never gotten a message back from Twitter in any short period of time. It's always been at least two weeks when I've been rejected like 50 times for verification. So I was not too faithful about that. So anyway... I was locked out. I immediately, as I deleted the tweet, the, my countdown started, and I essentially cannot do anything except DM text. I can't do anything else through DMs with followers, but I can't use my Twitter account, essentially. I can just read Twitter. So what Twitter said was that I was essentially inciting harassment and violence toward a particular group of people. In the first tweet, which was the tweet in question, they didn't cite the whole thread. It was just the first tweet. I used the term Western propagandist. So I'm guessing that who I was inciting harassment and violence toward was the Western propagandist. But nonetheless, uh, the the point, I think, of the censorship of getting me off of Twitter for a week, there were a lot, prop or not, I wish I had screenshotted it because now it's probably lost in the spit, but prop or not on some people's threads, you know, Lee Camp and Norton, they tweeted out you you as well uh katie thank you and um but i noticed on one of their threads prop or not i don't know if you remember them katie the shady uh, organization cited by the washington post bezos's washington post in 2017 during the whole russiagate fiasco they came out with like the first blacklist of russian disinformation which had black agenda report naked capitalism all kinds of other sources. They were like celebrating me being locked out. I don't think they knew it was temporary. I don't know how long I've got, but uh, but they were like celebrating. They're like, oh yes, Danny Haifong is gone. The the mouthpiece for the Communist Party. I was just like, really? I was watching the Celtics game at the time, so I didn't even think about. It. I was like, I'm not. I'm not messing with this. But that was, you know, I, I think the reason for the censorship though is that there's a lot of there's a lot at stake riding on this Tiananmen Square narrative. And there were a lot of whoever they are, bots, whoever is working behind the scenes, or just people who literally believe in the propaganda around Tiananmen Square. Uh, they they have a lot uh, riding on this narrative to smear China and also to make uh, anyone who challenges this narrative out to be some sort of agent of the Communist Party. When in reality, uh, the facts are 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 pretty clear, and and that's 
was the point of my thread to just show that even WikiLeaks, right? WikiLeaks came out with a, <clears throat> a cable, a leaked cable from uh, the U.S. Embassy in Beijing that, that said a Chilean diplomat was observing that students were coming and going freely from Tiananmen Square on the day of June 4th and that there was no a violent confrontation between the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, and the students. And that was so repressed that only the Telegraph, this like pretty, I mean, it's a big tabloid, but it's not a prominent news source. It's not a, a, new, a prominent news source of information in Western media. They were the only ones to cover that uh, leaked cable in 2011 when a lot of very important leaked information came out through WikiLeaks. So let's look at what you tweeted. This says, violating our rules against abuse and harassment, you may not engage in the targeted harassment of someone or incite other people to do so. This includes wishing or hoping that someone experiences physical harm. And you write, every June 4th, Western propagandists remind us of the Tiananmen Square massacre to smear China. The truth, no massacre occurred on the square. And the violence that took place Beijing during that time was part of a failed color revolution backed by the United States. So I'm not sure who you're threatening there or who you're wishing harm to. I even left out some things, right? The National Endowment for Democracy has celebrated. Uh, they they actually for, uh, were able to get a foothold in China uh, just the year prior, and they've celebrated recently how they were so invested in the Tiananmen Square uh, uh, unrest that happened. Um, they've done so on Twitter. But this particular point here, and some people I think might take issue because I, I named George Soros, there's a lot of various kind of debates that happen around George Soros. But there's one thing that's not, that cannot be questioned, is that George Soros, through his largesse, his huge amounts of wealth and money, has poured a lot into NGOs in order to uh, subvert and uh, subvert uh, states and countries and nations that the U.S. doesn't like, essentially. And at this time, uh, George Soros had poured $1 million in an NGO called the Fund for Reform and Opening of China in 1986 that began. And uh, it is credited a lot with funding a lot of the student leaders and the protest leaders, uh, some of which were actually not even in the square. They were actually conducting and committing the violence and help inciting the violence that actually did happen in Beijing um, around the square at this time where around 200 and 300 people were killed. So right after the Tiananmen uh, Square incident, right after this incident, China closed it down because it was quite obvious that it had at least some role to play in helping fuel the unrest and uh, in an attempt to spark a color revolution. So that was my point. You know, this was a very sensitive time in history. This was 1989. The Soviet Union was really on its last legs. Uh, there were color revolutions sparking all across Eastern Europe. And the United States wanted China to go down with the Soviet Union, wanted to go toward the path of the Soviet Union. And so uh, that's why there was so much investment from the NED and uh, this organization started by George Soros. And you're not an anti-Semite in case that's something that people were worried <laughs> about. I can vouch for that. I say that because a lot of anti-Semites use, I mean, it's 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 complicated because it's like a lot of anti-Semites use George Soros as this substitute figure for Jews, but he does a lot of stuff. So you can't just like pretend he doesn't do it. He's one of the richest men in the world. Exactly. 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 And he has a particular tar. It's not even just he's does, he has a lot of money. He just use, No, it's a particular target, right? It, it's pretty typical of someone who literally started the Asia financial crisis, like his hedge fund 
was the reason why there was an Asia financial crisis in the, in the late 90s. But yeah, exactly. There's a particular target to his investments in NGOs. And it's usually countries, regions, right, with the history of socialism. And he was huge in helping push, right? I didn't say he facilitated or he started it, but he helped definitely push it along through uh, using his money and influence to uh, help out that the civil society through the Open Society and other uh, organizations. R.I.P. Shireen Abouakle writes, weaponized fake anti-Semitism is used to shield this oligarch from critique. Yep, that's true. But before we get into the individual tweet, I realized like we should just set up. Can you set up what Tiananmen Square is and was? Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.